Well, as you heard Pam say, uh, Jonah Bissell is the pastor here at this church. He's usually here, um, and he asked me oh, several weeks ago if I would be able to uh, serve, and so um, what Jonah has been doing is going through the Old Testament in accordance with the Revised Common Lectionary. And so he started that in January, uh, right after Norell and I left here. Um, and so he's been going through that. It, it has readings from the Gospels. It has readings from the New Testament, the Psalms, and the Old Testament. So uh, what we've been focusing on is the Old Testament journey from Genesis all the way up to where we are today, which is Exodus 17. Last week, uh, Jonah opened his sermon by asking you to think of a time when you were beside yourself hungry, beside yourself hungry, when you were famished and starving. Maybe you're that way right now. (laughs) In that case, I'll try not to delay too long in my sermon. He said to picture a time in your life when you've had this feeling in your stomach that you just couldn't shake, and imagine how it felt when you finally ate. He asked you to keep that feeling fresh as you studied the passage where God gave the people of Israel manna in Exodus 16. That was last week. So I was listening uh, on Zoom uh, during that time, and Jonah made a point that the story illustrates the fact that we are all hungry. We are deeply, spiritually hungry. And that Jesus is the only one who can truly satisfy our soul's deepest hunger. So that's what he talked about. And he called upon us to receive Jesus, the bread of life, that we would hunger no more, which was the title of his sermon. Well, this morning, we have somewhat of a sequel. (laughs) Surprisingly, we have somewhat of a sequel to last week's sermon. But instead of the issue of hunger, we'll study a story that illustrates the nature of our thirst. Several years ago, we went out to Charlie Pressey's cabin, and uh, one of the things I spoke on when we were there, with just as an introduction, is I talked to the kids about the nature of our thirst. What is it? And uh, who put it there? And what we're going to do today is see what God did to truly satisfy that thirst. Um, So in the same way as last week, in a very similar way, I want you to imagine a time when you were really thirsty, um, didn't have any water to drink, and how it felt. Like, I'm a little thirsty right now, actually. What I want to do this morning is I want to read through Exodus 17, 1 through 7. I want to unpack the story of the water and the rock. Some of you know what that means, but we'll all study it together. I want to briefly go over the context, so I want to put this story in the historical and geographical context, and then I want to bring out three aspects of the story of desperate thirst. First, how did the people react to it? Second, how did Moses, their leader, react to it and to them? And thirdly, what did God do about it, and how did he do it? So that's my, my plan. And what I want to do is cast this story in light of how it's referred to in the rest of Scripture, which is what Jonah has been doing with you all year. I want to bring out what it, I want to talk about what it brings out about God and the work of Jesus on the cross, consistent with the, the passages you just read. Those are 
two passages that Brett just read that are redemptive. The, the two sons, the one who didn't do it, who said he wouldn't do it and then did. And then the story from Philippi, Philippi Philippians uh, about uh, Jesus. And those are two redemptive. So I want to talk about how this story connects with this, the work of Jesus on the cross. My hope, my hope is that you will go to the Lord Jesus Christ that we will go to him with our spiritual and physical needs and find water for our thirsty soul, which is the title of the sermon. But first, let me read the passage, and then I'll pray. Okay, all the congregation, so here it is, Exodus 17, 1 through 7. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin. It's an interesting name for a wilderness, by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. The wilderness of sin was where they were given the manna. So they moved on from that by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. And they camped at Rephidim, but there, there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, What shall I do with these people, this people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so, in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he called the name of the place, instead of Rephidim, he had his own two names, he called the place Massa and Meribah. Because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? Let me pray. Lord God, Father, I pray that as we look into your word right now, as we look into your word right now, God, that you would go with us, that you would bring out from your word things that stand out to you, things that should stand out to us. Lord, I pray that you'd give us your Holy Spirit to interpret this for us and help us to understand. Lord, I pray that we would be ready to hear the testimony of Jesus as we read this scripture. And Lord, I pray that we would apply it to our lives. We didn't come here just to get smarter. We came here to be different. Lord, help us to walk into that difference today in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, a little map time. I don't know if you can see that map. So our story opens up with the people of Israel on a journey through the wilderness. And they arrived at a place called Rephidim. I wish I had like a PowerPoint so Rephidim is right at the bottom, just as you get to Mount Sinai, you can see it right at the bottom. And at this point in the story, it's just been two months. 
It's only been two months. It's less than three months since they crossed the Red Sea and were delivered from over 400 years of slavery. So that whole journey, you can see where they crossed the Red Sea up front and they worked their way down. That's two months, only two months. (laughs) I looked at it. I studied it. Um, In the last month and a half, they saw God turn the bitter water of Mara, which means bitter, to sweet water to satisfy their thirst. And if you can see right where it says Red Sea and it's going like this, that's where Mara is. And we saw them camp at an oasis called Elim, which means palms, or palms, where they were, there were 12 springs of water, 12 springs of water there and about 70 palms. palms. Then they camped by the Red Sea for a few days. Then they came to the wilderness where they experienced the hunger that Jonah shared about last week, and God gave them manna and quail in the wilderness of sin. And right after that story, they set out and set up camp at Rephidim, where it says there was no water to drink. And here is the dilemma in the problem statement, which we'll deal with this morning. They camped at a place where there was no water. There's a leadership decision for you. But just, uh, but just to finish off the context, right after this event, if you look at verse 8 in Acts 17, something happens. They get attacked by the Amalekites before arriving in Sinai in the third month. That all happened in three months, guys. A lot happened to the people of Israel in a very short period of time before they arrived at Sinai in the third month. Anyway, I just I love to give you the context of what's going on in the, in the minds of the people as they're traveling through this journey. Well, when they arrived at Rephidim to camp, they discovered, like I said, there was no water for them to drink, and they were thirsty. Now think back about what it's like to be thirsty and have no water to drink. So think back about that. What did they do? What did they do? How did they react? They began to grumble, complain, and test God. That's what they did. This wasn't the first time the people would murmur against Moses and God, and it wouldn't be the last. It says that they quarreled with God about the situation, and they tested God. How did they test God? Remember in verse 7? It says that they, they were saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? After all they've been through, with God's miraculous deliverance, they were doubting His presence and maybe even His existence. It was as if to say to God, what have you done for us lately, God? Or, if you even exist or matter. (laughs) That's what they were saying. Is God with us or not? And in their quarrel with Moses, they even went so far as to falsely accuse Moses of bringing them out of Egypt to kill him. To kill him. Really? Their question goes to Moses' motive. They asked, why'd you bring us out of Egypt? Didn't they know the answer to that question? Why did, God, why did Moses bring them out of Egypt? Moses was sent by God to deliver them from slavery and bring them to the promised land. But they suggested a different motive. 
Rather than to save them, they suggested that he meant to kill them with thirst. Wow, how fickle the people were. If we stop here and we examine Moses' original intention, do you remember what happened in uh, Exodus, Exodus chapter 3 and 4 when he was called? He didn't volunteer. He didn't apply for that job. It was simple obedience. Remember the burning bush and the discussion he had with God? He didn't even want the job. He didn't even want the job. He did it because God insisted. And now he was being falsely accused of an ulterior motive, an evil ulterior motive. Just think back for a minute. What would a leader be thinking and feeling at a time like this? This is just a good a snapshot for a leader. What would he be thinking and feeling? Maybe he or she would be defensive and strike out with a strong rebuke. Blah, 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 you know? Go back at him. Or sometimes maybe a leader would go inward and wallow in depressive insecurity. Maybe. Rare is the leader who can withstand this kind of unfair treatment by his or her followers with patient love and steady benevolence, to be benevolent in the midst of this for the good of the people who are accusing you of trying to kill them. That's rare leadership. Well, okay, so how did Moses react? Well, at first, we see that Moses went back and forth with them with their complaint. He's quarreling. There's quarrels are two, right? There's two people involved in a quarrel. They're going back and forth. It says that the people quarreled with him, culminating with Moses asking them two why questions. Two why questions, you remember? Why do you quarrel with me? And why do you test the Lord? These two questions, these two why questions, prompted the people to ask a why question of themselves. Oh, yeah? Why did you bring us here? To kill us with thirst? You can just see the quarrel going on between them. Just, it's, it's kind of tit for tat, right? Ultimately, ultimately, Moses threw up his hands in frustration and he turned to the Lord, which is probably what he should have done in the first place. And it's what all good godly leaders do in a case like this. They turn to the Lord. We should turn to the Lord instead of going back and forth arguing with the people. It says, he cried out to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They're almost ready to stone me. He could feel it. And the Lord answered him, and in this answer, we see what God did about the situation. So I'm setting this up, and now we get to see what God is going to do about this situation. We see the people complaining in their thirst about no water, and we see them testing God. We see them testing God. We see them quarreling with Moses, who engages in a quarrel with them before he cries out to God, what should I do with these people? Perhaps Moses was expecting, what do you think? Perhaps Moses was expecting God to come down hard on these guys for their lack of faith in complaining. Wouldn't you think? Perhaps God would defend Moses, 
his honor with a harsh rebuke and an affirming word with Moses. He did that sometimes. What would he do? What was God going to do now? Well, the people were thirsty, so this is what God did. He gave them refreshing water to drink. Not anything about what I just said, about a rebuke. He just gave them refreshing water to drink. That's what he did. Okay. God understood the nature of our thirst because he put it there. He put it there. And he satisfied that thirst in a way that only he could. Well, how did he do it? This is the fun part. How did he do it? Well, let's look at what he told Moses in those couple of little verses. They are gold. They are gold. And it points to the gospel. Well, what did he do about it? First, he said to Moses, he said, pass on before the people. Pass on before the people. If you look up the Hebrew, it's almost like bypass the people. Okay? Not go out to meet with them. Not go out against them but to go out past them, pass on before the people. Do you know sometimes it's not about having hard conversations? I know hard conversations have to happen, but sometimes it's not about that. Sometimes it's just about meeting the needs of the people, and that's what happened. God told Moses to pass on before the people, and in saying this, it was clear he was not to do it behind them or around them, but in a way that was visible to them in front of their eyes, their faces, as the Hebrew word says there. They were supposed to see him taking action, not against them, but just before them. And he was to move beyond where they were. The people were in a bad place. And he told Moses to move beyond that. Don't get caught up in their argument, Moses. Just fix the problem. Just fix the problem. That's what a leader does. He or she leads them from the place they are to the place they should be. That's what a leader does. Okay, there you go. One little verse, at least a piece of a verse, and I got that out of it. This was, this was so fun for me to study this over the last several weeks. Next, the Lord said to take with him some of the elders of Israel. No doubt this would serve to bring eyewitnesses and to, that were credible and influential to, to watch what he was doing. Okay. Then he said, take with you the staff or the rod with which you struck the Nile. Interesting for him to say that. Remember what happened to the water of the Nile when he struck it? You guys all watched the Charlton Heston Ten Commandments, didn't you? What happened? <laughs> when he struck the Nile with his staff, it became undrinkable it turned to blood. This was one of the first plagues of judgment upon Egypt. But now, the rod of judgment was to be used in a more redemptive way. The same rod would be used in a more redemptive way, a way that would bring refreshing, thirst-quenching water. Okay, stay tuned. He said, Then the Lord said, Behold, this is, this, is the, this is the crescendo right here. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. 
I, the Lord, will stand before you, Moses. And where would the Lord stand? Where was he going to stand? On the rock. The term stand before or stood before. I've known this for about 10 years. This time, I actually did my homework. The words, the term stand before or stood before occurs 85 times in the Scriptures, both Old and New Testament. Most of, those, most of them, 55 to be exact, of the 85, it's, the term is used to describe when someone stands before a superior, a king or a judge. For instance, consider the following verses. Oh boy, probably a little hard to read. I'll just read them for you. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-nine. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. An inferior standing before a superior. In Mark 13, 9, Be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to the councils, and you'll be beaten in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. Acts 27, 24, Paul you must stand before Caesar. Romans 14.10. This is one that we're familiar with. It's part of uh, the, the Christian testimony. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. That's the, term, the way stand before is used. But now, now my friends, stand before is how God describes what he's going to do with Moses. Behold, I will stand before you, Moses. Almost as if to say, I will stand before Moses who represents the judge and the law. I, the Lord, will take the judgment upon myself. That's what's going on here. <laughs> A few years ago, do you remember this, John? We were down in prison and uh, we're just doing Bible study. All my illustrations are about my time with John in the prison. where We, we were just visiting. We didn't actually do time. <laughs> A few years ago, um, we're, we're in there doing Bible study, and we were on something else. And I happened to be studying this because we were doing this big conference on the water and the rock. We actually presented it as finding God in the hard places. This was with the navigators. And so I've been studying this, and out of the blue... Out of the blue, one of the inmates said, Mike, isn't there a place in the Bible where there's water that comes out of a rock? And I'm just like, you've got to be kidding me. I cannot believe you just asked that question. <laughs> um, and so we talked about the story a little bit, and, and I, I brought up about this nuance of the Lord standing before Moses. And so I, I asked them, I'm, uh, with a room full of people down at Cumberland County Prison, I asked them when they received the court's verdict or the court's sentence, I said, who was standing in the room when you received that verdict or sentence? They said, I was. We, we, we were. Okay. Who else was standing in that room besides the guards? Who else was standing in that room at that moment? I said, no one else, just me. I paused. And I said, that's what the Lord did for you. That's what the Lord did for you. He stood before the judge 
and He took it for you. He paid the penalty that you and I deserved. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when they heard that, when they heard that, a bunch of these burly guys sat there and they said they had shivers running up and down their spine, which I interpreted as faith. Okay, that stood before. The next thing he said is, you will strike the rock. So the Lord said, I will stand before you on the rock of Horeb. And the Lord said to Moses, you shall strike the rock. And remember that he was standing there on it. So who did Moses strike with the rod of judgment? He struck the Lord. And in case you think I'm making this up, if you look in 1 Corinthians 10.4, Paul the apostle made it explicit. He said, the rock was Christ. The rock in this story was Christ. Okay, keep going, Mike. And finally, the Lord told Moses what would result when Moses would strike the rock. Water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. Like I said before, this was the rod with which Moses struck the Nile and made it undrinkable. But now, the rod of judgment would strike the rock, representing Jesus Christ. And it would bring out refreshing, life-giving, thirst-quenching water. Not poison, not vitriolic condemnation, but refreshing water for our thirsty souls. This, this is what we needed. This is what we needed. This is what we are crying out for even to this day. You see, God understands our nature. He understands the nature of our thirst. And in our thirst, we complain, we murmur, we get hangry, we sin. We turn on our leaders, we turn on God Himself. Yet God knows the solution. He goes beyond the argument and He fixes it. It's a solution that only He can provide. He took the judgment of our sin upon Himself. And this is the Old Testament, and it points to what Jesus did. And He provided us living water to refresh our souls and quench our physical and spiritual thirst. So how many times in the Scriptures does it refer to the Lord, to how the Lord is the one who satisfies our thirst How many times in Scripture does it refer to the Lord satisfying our thirst? David said it in Psalm 63, 1. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Solomon said it in Proverbs like cold water to a thirsty soul, so is good news from a far country. So is the gospel, which is the word good news, from a far country. Isaiah said it in Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat, with no money. (laughs) Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Isaiah said it. 
Jesus said it to the woman at the well when he said, everyone who drinks of the water of this well will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, he will or she will never thirst again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. When you drink the water of Jesus, you become a source of water to your community. The Apostle John quoted it. Sorry, there's John 4. The Apostle John quoted it and quoted Jesus in saying, saying this at the end of all things. I love the way it says it in Lord of the Rings. The end of all things. Revelations. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I wasn't just there in the beginning. I am the beginning. I wasn't just there in the end, or will be there in the end. I am the end. That's what he's saying. That's a different sermon. To the thirsty, I will give from the springs of the water of life without payment. And then in Revelation 22, the spirit and the bride say, come, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Just like Isaiah said thousands of years earlier. My friends, God knows our thirst. He gets it. He has provided in Jesus the only way to truly satisfy that thirst. And he calls on us in the midst of our complaining, blaming, and sin to come to him, not run away. He took the judgment of all of that on himself at the cross, bearing our guilt and shame on himself for our sin. All he asks is that we repent and believe in him to receive forgiveness, freedom, and restoration, to receive the living water for our thirsty souls. I pray that this good news will send shivers of faith up and down your spine today, and you will come to Jesus and take the water of life without price, not only now, but for a lifetime. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Lord, there are so many lessons to learn from this story, Lord. We see how the people responded to their thirst by turning away from Moses and you. May we rather turn toward you, turn to you today and always. We see how Moses moved beyond the argument and the quarrel of the people to actually fix the problem and meet their need. Lord, when we face trials as leaders, help us to turn to you and courageously lead the people beyond where they are to where they should be. And most of all, we see how you took the judgment of our sin upon yourself at the cross. And when you were struck with the rod of judgment, what resulted? Lord, we know that what came out was not poison or vitriolic condemnation, but the refreshing, life-giving, thirst-quenching water of forgiveness, freedom, and restoration. And you call us to come to you. If you've never come to Jesus, pray this with me now. We come to you now, Lord Jesus. Give us this water today and always.
give us this water. Forgive us for our sin. Free us from our addictions. Restore us to a right relationship with you. Satisfy us with the presence of your Holy Spirit and help us to follow you for the rest of, your, rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.